This is part two of the David Elmquist story. So if you haven't already listened to part one, make sure you go back an episode and check that out. Okay, guys, let's jump right back into it. I actually recorded this episode all at once, so it just ended up being too long. I decided to split it into a two-parter for you. So uh, with this, we're just going to be jumping right back into the story where we left off last episode. Now, let's get into the evidence in this case that I feel is the most damning, the evidence that has drawn everyone to this case recently. While David was burned on 90% of his body, including inside of his mouth and nose, he was not burned on the inside of his wrists. And this isn't like a random spot on each wrist. No, they're matching spots on both wrists that have a very distinct line of demarcation between skin that was burned and skin that was left clear. This is what caught my eye when I first looked into the Instagram dedicated to finding justice for David at Truth for David Scott. You can find pictures and information there as well. We have also shared these photos on our Instagram. And I will warn you that these photos are gut-wrenching. The inside of David's arm is extremely red and pink. Clearly, top layers of his skin have been completely burned off. And then there's this brown skin surrounding the pink. Skin that was burned and all of a sudden towards the bottom of his arm, this red and brown skin completely stops in a perfect straight line. And below this line, the skin on his wrist is clean of any burns. And then starting at the palm of his hand, you can see that his skin is clearly burned again because it's gray and brown and literally falling off of his hand. Weird that it's just this one area on each wrist, right? So at first glance, this photo looks like David was tied up or restrained. And that would be absolutely terrifying and would clearly show foul play. But David's wrists... They aren't clean all the way around his arm. The top of his wrists are burned. So no, I don't think he was tied up and neither does David's dad. But the story told is that David had poured bacon or bacon, I'm not sure exactly how you pronounce it, oil all over himself before pushing his wife out of the apartment. In fact, Miss X claims that he poured this oil all over himself two separate times. According to Mass.gov, Bakken crude oil is generally considered a lightweight sweet petroleum crude and therefore may contain flammable gases in solution that rise the vapor pressure and lower the flash point and initial boiling point of the material. And then I found on everycrsreport.com that, quote, all crude oils are flammable to a varying degree. Further, crude oils exhibit other potentially hazardous characteristics as well. The growing perception is that light, volatile crude oil, like back in crude, is a root cause for catastrophic incidents and thus may be too hazardous to ship by rail, end quote. This is what David pours on himself two separate times, apparently. 
but for grabbing a lighter that he wrestles his wife for and then ultimately pushes his wife out of the apartment and lights himself on fire. Well, how could those two very distinctly separated parts of his wrists not be burnt? Well, Scott believes that at the time David had oil poured on him, he had to have been leaning over the kitchen sink. So his head is down towards the sink with his wrists resting on the edge of the sink. There were also indents on his wrists that do seem to match to the edge of the sink and the edge of the countertop and would have pushed into his skin. Now, in the pictures that David's family shares, you can see this kitchen sink and you can see that there was oil poured in that area. There is oil running down the cabinets just below the sink and there was also an inconsistent spill pattern on the edge of the counter. There was something obstructing the oil from this area, areas where Stephen's wrist could have been resting. Now, I don't know if I mentioned this, but the back in oil is like this brownish color. So it's not like, you know, this clear liquid, like a clear oil. So you can distinctly see, you know, where there is this inconsistent spill pattern. You can clearly see like where the majority of the oil is at. And that's right here around the sink. Yep. And if you look at the photographs, you'll see oil was spilled directly down the cabinet from the sink uh-huh. and there's inconsistent spill pattern as if something was obstructing that which would have been David's wrist so mm-hmm. and not only that but David was more severely burned especially on his right arm which is on the petition site and it just confirms the fire inspector says or independent investigator says the main fire was on the dishwasher and the sink area. You put David in that position. He's burned on more severely on his right side, especially his right arm. Mm-hmm. And it's all logical. I mean, it, yeah. I mean, how does a guy randomly pour oil all over it and then he has these distinct horizontal marks? Very on, distinct. Yeah. I mean, so... There can be no other explanation, and again, that's why I emphasize, you know, to your listeners that the night that we got him into the hospital and how vulnerable he was. So he could have been told to do anything. Hey, stand over here, do this. I told Al Harris, you know, I could have told him that night, jump out the window, and he would. He didn't know what was going on. He could have been in a psychosis. That's what I believe. He would have been complicit because, like we talked about earlier, she... You know, three weeks earlier, she's smacking him and he was doing nothing, right? Exactly, exactly. Scott hired his own independent fire investigator who is fully credentialed, and his name is Stephen Foran. And Stephen reports that, quote, It appears within a reasonable degree that this is consistent with a protected area, that his arms were resting on the sink at or near the time of ignition of the fire. The width of the sink and counter edge in the photographs are similar with the markings on the anterior arm. Based upon the review of the fire damage and autopsy report and photographs, it is my opinion that Mr. Elmquist was the item that was on fire within the space. End quote. Now, If David was resting on the sink during the time of ignition, how did he then, 
light himself on fire? How did he pour the oil across his entire body, but he managed to keep it off the inside of his wrists? And do you want to know what's really weird? The autopsy report, it mentions nothing about these two distinctly protected areas. And if you've seen pictures, you know that David's wrists stand out among all the burnt skin. Scott realizes this oversight and goes to the Hennepin County Medical Examiner to discuss it. And the medical examiner is like, oh, oops, well, you know, David must have been wearing gloves. And then he doesn't elaborate any further. This doesn't seem right, that these two areas wouldn't even be mentioned on an autopsy report. Elena girl, is this normal? Do you guys know her? Do you listen to Morbid? She's the host on that podcast, my all-time favorite podcast, and she's an autopsy tech. I want her to look at these photos and let us know if it's normal in an autopsy report to not mention an area like this on a burnt body. So Elena, I need answers. And yeah, I'm talking to her like she would ever in a million years hear this, but you know, whatever. I'm putting it out there into the universe. (laughs) Now, when I called my dad, I also asked him about these protected areas. And his first thought was also gloves, explaining that if David were wearing tight gloves, the fire could have burned through the palm area to his hands. But if there was some tight elastic on the wrists, it could have stopped the oxygen from touching his wrists. Therefore, it wouldn't burn. But as we continued to talk, there were two problems with the thought that gloves could have caused this. First is that the top side of David's wrists were burned. It's only the inside of his wrists and a glove band so tight that it would block the burn would be tight around his entire wrist, blocking it off in a complete circle. And the second problem was that if there was a band that didn't burn and protected the wrists, that part of the glove would have remained on David's body. Remnants would have been found, yet there were none. Those are really straight marks from what I can see on the picture. So I can't see the back of his hands, but he either had to be wearing some sort of tight gloves or something, and maybe they burned through the palm of his hand. That's all I can see. Um, But something had to be on that wrist that didn't allow his skin to burn. So it it wouldn't burn through a glove? Well, it might. I mean, but he might have fire might have been out yeah. before it was able to burn through the part that was wrapped around his wrist and now it could would, have been something else would they have something was on his wrist would they have found remnants of a glove if that was the case like uh, they, yeah probably like if it I mean, didn't I, I, burn I him know. there yeah i don't know that it was a glove i'm just saying that something had to be wrapped around his wrist right there and i mean it's a pretty straight line you know whether it was tape or whether it was some kind of glove or something. It wasn't water or anything like that that would have been running over his hands. It's too straight for that. No, they're thinking he was leaning like that part of his wrist was actually sitting on the sink. Like, does that make sense? Like on the edge of the sink? Yeah, that's possible, I guess. But he would have had to have stayed there 
and not moved while the rest of him burned. That seems unlikely if he was conscious. Yeah, which he did move. Even though he moved, what if just there just wasn't oil on that part of his body? Would it have been less likely? Because I'm wondering if he burned, like all the oil on him burned, and then it, you know, like he was able to get around because the fire, I feel like kind of went out after the oil burned, but he was already burned on his whole body. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, I guess if, I don't know how you dump oil on yourself with your own hands and not, well, having both hands on the sink. Well, that's what they're thinking. They're thinking he did not pour the oil on himself or light himself on fire. Yeah, I mean, so if he was leaning on the sink, the oil might not have gotten right there. But any other way, oil would have been splashed all all over the place. It wouldn't have been a straight line like that. Yeah, exactly. Now, why would a man sit there, bend over a sink, while his wife pours oil all over him and then proceeds to light him on fire? Well, this is where the vulnerability comes into play. The psychosis and mental state he was in at this time has made it easy for investigators to say that he was likely to take his own life. But has anyone stopped to consider that his mental state may have put him in a vulnerable position? Remember what Scott just told us, that during the psychosis he witnessed three weeks earlier, he believed David could have been told to do anything. Now, this is one thing that points to more questions than answers in this case. And it's not one single thing that makes David's death suspicious. It's the accumulation of many things. Which brings us to the next point. David lit himself on fire with a lighter, right? Well, even this can't be proved. Because that lighter, well, it was never found. And because the lighter was never found, the state fire marshal is like, you know what? He probably didn't light himself on fire with a lighter, regardless of his wife saying he had a lighter. He must have turned on the stove and threw a towel onto it. I guess that's the source of ignition. Oh, um, okay. Well, if that was the case, wouldn't the towel be completely burnt? Wouldn't the stove be burnt if this was the source of ignition? Instead, that towel was still sitting on the stove, just smoldering once the firefighters finally enter the apartment. You know, it's interesting because I asked the the state fire marshal, I said, did they tell you as a lighter? And then he paused. He said, no. Well, my communications with lead investigator, uh, he said that the, the, the fire marshal and the other agencies couldn't find the lighter. So what they did was... Instead of saying, and they don't mention it, the fire marshal doesn't mention it, and it's not mentioned anywhere. So instead, what they did was they came up with a hypothesis that David, the way he started this fire was he turned on the burners, and then he threw a towel on there, and that's what started the fire. Now, my independent fire investigator, in a very professional way, just said this is well, he said it's tenuous at best, but he said none of this is consistent with any of the professional national fire association standards or whatever it is. And it's complete BS. And what about the fact that Miss X 
literally states in her story in recordings that she wrestled with David to get a lighter out of his hands. A lighter that she does take, but says that he eventually gets back from her. She is literally saying he had a lighter, yet no lighter was found by any law enforcement or fire department inside David's apartment. Scott's wife did ask a Hennepin County attorney if she could explain to her why there was no lighter. And she's like, oh, you know, he probably just threw it out the window. Hmm. So one person is saying that the ignition source is a towel that was not burnt or disintegrated. Another person is saying he probably just threw the lighter out after lighting himself on fire. So after David lights himself on fire, she thinks that David walked over to that window that has, remember, no trail of oil leading to it, and he chucks the lighter out the window. Well, also remember that David's burns on his eyelids left him almost completely blind, and smoke filled the apartment, leaving an obstructed view. If this is the thought, why didn't investigators look outside for the lighter? It's because they ruled David's death as a suicide right away. This was a suicide in their minds before anyone ever even entered that apartment or saw David's condition. Late in March or something would be my guess. And we went outside, you know, and looked around the apartment just to see, you know, because there was still shattered glass on the outside of the apartment, you know, down below the balcony. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we picked around and walked around just just out of curiosity. You see, we even walked down to the back door for whatever reason she ran through the back door. Oh, she said she ran out of the back door just in case it was going to be a really bad fire, a really big fire. Oh, like, okay. Yeah, it's like... Very strange. Yes. Scott had asked another Hennepin County attorney, Mr. Harris, if he could interview Miss X's mom in relation to this missing lighter that she supposedly found. But all he could say in response was, quote, well, I won't debate that with you. All I'm going to say is, again, I'm not saying it's immaterial, but if that's the case, what does it prove? Scott responds saying that it proves Miss X was lying and what reason would she have to lie about a lighter? Before Mr. Harris continues with, quote, that could be any number of reasons and she could be mistaken about things. I don't know, but it doesn't, for me, it doesn't turn it from, the lie doesn't turn it into she did it, end quote. No one in any law enforcement or attorney's office has ever interviewed Miss X's mom about this lighter or this story. I'm going to share an audio clip of Scott reading a recorded statement from Miss X. 
So I just went back into the bedroom, quickly grabbed my phone. So I needed to call 911. Um, as I grabbed my phone, he came in and he pushed me and grabbed my phone and his phone. And I said, honey, I need my phone. You know, if I, if I have to leave, um, he said, you can get it when you leave. I said, okay. I grabbed a shirt, a sweatshirt. And while I was putting on my shirt, um, I heard a splashing noise. I looked, I went into the entry a hallway and David had a container sort of like clear um there's this brown liquid and I'm assuming it's some sort of oil that he had raised above his head and was pouring it over his body that is what I saw that that's when I saw that the light that indicates the stove the burner uh for the stove was um and then I saw a lighter like and then my daughter asked her like a lighter that you'd use to light a candle behind him yep a long thing behind him I reached for it he pushed he pushed me I got oil all in my hair all down my body on my clothes the whole everything I started to scream help he covered my mouth with his hand he pushed me up against the door I was able to to he uh, he let go and I ran into the bathroom um, I rinsed my arms from the oil. I went back into the kitchen. I tried to turn the faucet on to like spray this oil off of him. He pushed me again. I was able to grab my phone and a key. I didn't know what key it, it was, it, it, his truck key that I uh, was able to grab. I opened the door. He pushed me out and I screamed for Mosley to come. Mosley came and I got into the hallway and immediately started screaming for help in the hallway. There was a gentleman that came down the hallway and he said, what's going on? What do you need? I said, my husband is about to start a fire. I don't know what is going on. Please help. And this lighter wasn't the only time that Miss X lied or made a weird statement. As interviews with Miss X start, police are asking her what exactly happened that night. And she makes an alarming statement that has me like, what? Why would you say that when your husband just died because he lit himself on fire, according to you? So David, she lit him on fire when he was bent over the sink. I believe he ended up going and laying on the bed for a a minute or two. She then took this jug of oil, poured it all over and then um, turned on the burners and throw, threw a, uh, a rag or a towel onto the stove, thinking the whole thing was going to go up. She says later in a recorded interview that she's actually surprised that the fire was so small. Scott finds this statement very strange. Now, the police did realize at the least that it was somewhat strange that David had plans to move home the very next day, leaving his wife and wanting a divorce. So they do ask Miss X about it. Right, right. Well, then, then too, they ask her, did you talk about a divorce? Did you talk about a divorce that night or him moving home? And She then says she's not sure if they talked about a divorce that night, but she does think they did talk about it that week sometime. This gal is sitting in the back of the car of, of the are immediately after the fire she knows david she's already been informed he's been burned severely mm-hmm. um i don't know if they said he's probably not going to survive but she knows he's been burned severely she's talking in a mon- we have the audio tape monotone when when my daughter first heard that she goes we don't have to do anything else just let people listen to this and they'll say this is crazy because there was thing- no emotion 
Yeah, and well, just what she talks about. It's then in the back of a police car that she reiterates how she's pretty sure that David was going down to his truck to get his wedding ring out. She wants the officers to know that he doesn't ever wear his wedding ring at work. Interestingly, we have a picture and the wedding ring is on the nightstand next to the bed. So it's just it just is so weird that she's concerned that, you know, it's like, oh, David died without his wedding ring. And they're going to say, why wasn't he wearing his wedding ring? I mean, it's stupid. But why are you sitting in the back of a police car talking about why he went down the truck to get a wedding ring? Um, You know, and then you don't know if you talked about you know, whether or not he he wanted a divorce or that he was going to move home, I think was the question. But she remembers many details of the evening. You know, he cooked me some food and then we did this and then we laughed and it's just just nuts. So with that wedding ring, it seems like she's trying to give them a reason that he wasn't wearing it. Yeah, it's just weird. That's very weird. (laughs) Yeah, it's just After David is brought to the hospital and soon taken off the ventilator, his parents are in shock and disbelief just watching their life crumble all around them. Well, David's wife, she never goes into the room to see her husband one last time. She doesn't want to say goodbye to him. So it's at the hospital that Scott asks Miss X how long she had to gather her things when David was pushing her out of the apartment. And she's like, well, I only had like two to three seconds. But then later on, she tells police she had about two to three minutes to gather that cell phone, the truck keys and the dog. But the neighbor that lived just below them heard commotion for about 10 to 15 minutes. And eventually, Miss X says there was about 10 to 15 minutes that she was aware of what was going on, but... During all this time, she couldn't get to her phone to call 911. But don't worry, she was able to grab it just before she was pushed out of the apartment. It wasn't two or three minutes. He said, she said, I heard a bunch of pounding and things going around there for like 10 or 15 minutes. And uh, so that just supports, you know, this, you know, contradicts what she told us, you know, like what I just read to you, two minutes. She told me two to three seconds at the hospital that he pushed her out. She had two to three seconds to think about it or whatever. Right. Scott believes that there is evidence of a second pour of the oil. And with this, there are more statements made by Miss X that are just straight up sketchy. Here is Scott's theory. I think David was in that position over the sink. Mm -hmm. He gets on fire. She's in there. He ends up on the bed. And then she uh, grabs this oil jug. She goes and opens the windows to ventilate it. Mm -hmm. And then she grabs this oil jug quickly, pours it all over, turns on the burners, throws a towel, runs out calls the dog because she she made a comment to my daughter the day after like my daughter said something like where was that oh he was in there with david but then i called and then the dog came out which is just a contradiction but the police wouldn't listen to anything i told them so so she then leaves with the dog her phone and the keys to david's truck oh my gosh so david's wife she ends up going her separate ways with david's family She completely cuts off all contact with his family, which 
is really strange because she cut this communication and started acting really indifferent towards them far before they had this full-on idea that she was involved in David's death. She only contacted his family for about another two months after he died, and then this is when the communication ended. I mean, these people all grew up around Miss X. She was even super good friends with David's older sister, Amy, but she cuts her off as well. Part of the reason his family has been led to the conclusion she was involved is because of her actions towards them and in front of them. It's one point soon after David's death that Miss X does agree to meet up with Amy to tell her what happened that night. And when Amy arrives, she's like, hey, do you mind if I record this for my parents? They're desperate to know how this happened. And according to Amy's testimony that she thought she was a little uncomfortable, she goes, that's fine. Just as long as, you know, you listen to it once and you delete it. Huh. So she broke off communications. She put on a Facebook post that she said life is different or something like that. Mm-hmm. And my wife just responded, for me, life is this is uh, heartbreaking or something like that. Within a couple few minutes, she deleted all of any friend related to our family. And she's she's never communicated with us since wow we we went to their house immediately after you know the day after he died so this is on a saturday so friday we're you know totally whatever and then a friend said no you need to go over there to say so we went over there we, we weren't you know i thought it was odd the whole thing but like give me some answers there's something weird here we went in, in there and um you know, we didn't call, say, hey, we're coming over. But my da- my wife went over, sat next to her, pushed the hair off her, you know, face. And I went and sat in the corner. And then there's family members walking through. I said, could we go into another room? And the mother's like, no, you just stay here. And then, uh, then I'm sitting there. And my wife says, you know, what happened? Did you guys have a fight? You know, what's going on? You know, it's, we talked to David that afternoon. And... Um, he said it wasn't good. And then the mother just, I, I don't know, I don't remember what she said, but she was upset. And uh-huh. then I got up and I just said, um, Nancy, we need to leave. So I just went out because I thought this is going to, you know, excuse the expression, this is going to be a shit show in, in the really quick here. Yeah. And I just said, I'm getting out of here. And my wife stayed in there a couple minutes more and talked and then came out. Well, remember how during David's funeral, Scott was accepting the idea that David took his own life. Although he was suspicious of Miss X at this time, he thought to himself, well, if the door was locked, he had to have done this. But that information he had wasn't true. We know that door wasn't locked because we discussed earlier that the maintenance worker was able to walk directly inside. He had no key. And the door wasn't kicked in. This false narrative had been shoved into Scott's face by the police department and by Miss X. David's wife at the hospital had told David's sister and brother-in-law that he pushed her out and he locked the door. Scott even asks Miss X, did you try to get back in? And she's like, yes, but I couldn't get back in. That door was locked. 
Scott talks with a Hennepin County attorney regarding this weird piece that, again, just doesn't fit into the story. It's yet another lie. Yeah, the first thing he asked me was, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, the door was locked. Oh, here's the point. He says in one of his last emails to me, I cannot speak to the actions of the police department except what is reflected in their reports. So he's upholding this notion that the door was locked uh, 10 months after the fire. Um, And yet when we finally get the police report, which is uh, two years after that conversation, Yeah, that's crazy. And I read and that and there's at least 11 references to the door being unlocked. So my point is, why do you have two senior Hennepin County attorneys telling me the door was locked based upon that they say is all we do is go with what the police report. And then the police report I get is the door. There's it wasn't locked, you know. Now, this is where we come to what Scott believes to be the biggest part of a cover up. And it's plausible. Keep in mind how we discussed that the reason the police force didn't allow fire and rescue into the apartment to save David was because they believed there was a threat. Because Miss X stated that her husband probably possessed knives and he's dangerous. Police continued to believe that David was a threat, even though that maintenance worker had been inside minutes earlier, blowing him off with a fire extinguisher, and David was absolutely zero threat due to the burned condition that his body was in. In fact, there was one officer whose name Scott is keeping private until he can share it with a legitimate prosecutor. Well, this officer, he stated that David's wife scared them. She led them to believe he was going to attack. There were firefighters in the hallway awaiting the moment they would get the go-ahead to run inside. But we know that they never got that green light because David comes stumbling out on his own. It's a Plymouth Fire Department employee that explains to Scott that the condition David was in horrified them. Some employees at the fire station did end up having to take time off work and some received counseling surrounding this incident. Not only did the Plymouth police give a false statement to the media, probably in an attempt to push their position on this story. But they would go on, continuing to try and justify their actions that day. When talking with the media, it was Police Chief Goldstein who told the Associated Press that firefighters rescued the man who suffered smoke inhalation and severe burns. Well, that's not true. They weren't allowed to rescue that man. Scott feels like this was an attempt to mislead the public about David's death. It was three weeks after David passed away that Scott goes to the Plymouth Police Department to talk with the lead investigator, Mr. Bird. And he explains to Scott that they didn't allow the fire and rescue into the apartment because they believed David was lying in wait. And there was a brief standoff with him. As we will see, David was never even touching a weapon. How did he have a standoff with the police department? He was severely burned, but it seems that they are stating they had this standoff because 
David wouldn't come out of the apartment. Well, excuse me, sir, but um, he was severely burned and probably in shock, didn't know what was going on as he was literally dying. His eyelids were burned so badly that they were inverted so he couldn't see and the apartment was filled with smoke. He didn't stay in his apartment as a standoff. He stayed in there probably because he was out of it, close to death, and he couldn't see. But even Mr. Bird hadn't put that statement into his final report on the event. No, he wrote there that, quote, due to the fact that David had purposely lit himself on fire and was clearly not acting rationally, it would not have been prudent or safe to allow firefighters to enter the dwelling, end quote. Which, as we heard from my dad earlier, this is standard protocol when they feel like someone is a threat. That statement in the police report is a reason that law enforcement wouldn't allow fire and rescue onto a scene. What's weird, though, is the changing statements, like, make up your mind. Scott also points out that the statement in the report starts with, due to the fact. And then Scott asks, was it a fact that David had lit himself on fire? Because the only person pushing that story was, ding, 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 Miss X, David's wife. She was the only witness to the actual events leading up to this. A wife who David wanted to divorce. He had laid out a plan to leave her that very next day. And because of the mistakes that law enforcement made in this case, due to the fact that they probably didn't want to get heat or pushback on their handling of this case, Scott believes that a knife was planted at the scene to support their narrative and their reasoning for not entering. The knife was laying on the floor and it was from the knife block in the kitchen. And it's clean, like super clean, and it's laying among oil and soot. So Scott, he has studied David's autopsy photos as well as the photos of the knife. And he just can't get over how clean that knife handle was compared to the condition that David's hands were in. Before the fire was extinguished, David was covered in oil and flames. After David was hit with the fire extinguisher, he was then covered in burned skin, smoke, and remnants of the fire extinguisher. So there was no way, no way that David was the one who could have moved this knife out of its block and onto the floor. Not only was the handle completely clear of all that was on David, but it's laying on a dirty floor that is covered with bloody footprints, fire extinguisher dust, soot, burn flesh, and oil. I eventually, I looked at this, you know, after I saw the autopsy photos. When I saw that knife, my heart just, you know, just sank. I just thought, oh my goodness, my son's in there you know, threatening people. I'm just like, this is not David. And then I'm looking at this knife and then I I look at the autopsy. I I said, there's not a chance. There's not a chance in Chicago, David touched these. So then all of a sudden, you know, they can't embrace their original narrative when I visited with him that he was a threat. Mr. Bird states, quote, there were two kitchen knives found lying on the dining room floor. 
I examined the knives along with the Hennepin County Crime Lab and determined that neither had any evidence of bodily fluids on them and neither appeared to have played any role in this incident, end quote. And that's as far into the knives that the police or crime lab investigate. Well, if David didn't move these knives during his time being on fire or sitting inside burning, then who moved the knives? Because they were moved after the fire, since there's no blood, soot, or flesh present on them. Not only are these knives completely clean, but the knife block they came from, the soot patterns show that a knife was moved after soot was deposited onto the knife block. The only people who had access to the apartment immediately after David came out was the Plymouth Police Department. Scott feels that justice has been obstructed because of this. To me, all I needed was his statement that this this knife was moved, and then he noticed on the knife block that the knife sharpener was pulled out of there after because you could see the soot around there, but then, you know, the little round part of the sharpener had, you know, there was no dirt there, you know? Okay. Now, going along with this, Scott believes there is a bench that was possibly moved, and this is believed because the bench is sitting next to a wall. So the question is, how could the bench light on fire, but not the wall? Well, while this bench being moved still could be the case, there could also be an explanation as to why the bench would catch on fire, but not the wall. When I called my dad, a firefighter, for the last 17 years, he explained this to me. And that's okay. Even if the bench was not moved, that does not discount any of the other evidence. And if the information my dad shares does help explain how this could have happened, then David's family can continue focusing on all the points that don't make sense in this story. Yeah, I mean, it's possible. That's a a bare wood bench and you can see oil splattered all around it. And sheetrock is actually uh, fire rated for a certain amount of time. So, oh, okay. So the sheetrock might not have burned, but the exposed wood could have burned. That's definitely possible. Okay. Okay. Good to know. And Scott doesn't necessarily trust those who were supposed to investigate David's case because it is ultimately ruled that the oil poured all over David and all around the apartment was cooking oil. No, it was unrefined back in oil, which literally smells like fuel. It's also dark brown in color, while most cooking oils are clear in color. So how do trained professionals get this little detail wrong? I mean, I guess it's not a little detail. It's literally what they think, you know, David was covered in. What's little about it is, you know, the difference between cooking oil and this backing oil. How do you look at this and you're like, yep, that is cooking oil. Did you really look? Did you really care to look? It kind of leads me to what I talked with you guys about earlier, how this case was not a priority to be investigated. Because they walk in there with it already in their heads that David took his own life. 
And with that, it feels to me that there are so many questions left in the case because they simply didn't care enough to do a deep investigation. They didn't want to see if this was foul play. It already seemed obvious to them. Um, the liquid turned out to be cooking oil. So in the, the, the fire marshal's report, initially came out and he says we determined that everything is scientifically blah 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 and in it the the liquid was determined to be cooking oil that he intentionally poured over himself so here you have the state marshal willing to document cooking oil i remember when i told my sister-in-law this who's kind of a chef Uh uh-huh gourmet she just looked at me and just like that's not even possible but we're in shock so they document because they just didn't want to follow up on any of this you could not walk through this apartment it was poured all over with bakken oil that smelled like diesel fuel how do you ever conclude this is cooking oil uh yeah so the four big things that are in question here are first the protected areas on each of david's wrists to me this is unexplainable if he lit himself on fire It makes absolutely no sense, and I can't even wrap my mind around it. Second is the missing lighter. How does someone light themselves on fire with a lighter that their wife says was present at the scene? Yet, there is no lighter. My dad had pointed out to me that maybe the lighter melted if it was, you know, right there when David went up in flames. It would have been very hot in that area. But what he didn't know when he said that to me was that Miss X states after David's death that her mom finds this lighter a week later in the apartment right there by the kitchen table. She kind of tries to distance the kitchen table further away from the dishwasher than it really was. Remember, the dishwasher sink area is where David is believed to have started on fire. But it's because of this statement, this statement that she skips no beat on and says, yeah, my mom found that. Yeah, yeah, my mom found it. Okay, well, that is why that lighter couldn't have melted and it has still never been presented to this day. The lighter is still missing. No, you know, so the, the whatever, the police did their business, and then their family went in there to clean out the apartment. And then she's asked this by the state fire marshal in August, which is six months after the fire. And so he's going through this list of questions, which is recorded, and he says, do you have any idea of what happened to the missing lighter. And she says, oh, you know, without skipping a beat, you know? Mm-hmm. Without skipping a beat. Oh, you know, my mom found that over by the kitchen table. You know, I think she says on the floor. Well, we, the, the pictures we have, it's not that cluttered around the kitchen area. And you would think that if you had three law enforcement agencies, which would include the state fire marshal, they would see this lighter there. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, especially when they're literally in there to look for the source of this. Third is the story behind the locked door. Miss X tells police and David's family that the door was locked after he pushed her out. She even tried to get back in. But that is irrefutably discounted because we know the maintenance worker goes into the apartment and sprays David with a fire extinguisher. 
this maintenance worker never had a key to David's apartment. He would not have been able to enter and put out the fire if the door was locked and the door was not kicked in. There are also 11 references throughout the officer's police reports to the door being unlocked. And the fourth big thing in this case are the pristine knives laying among blood, soot, oil, and flesh. A knife so clean that even the police ruled it out as being involved, even though David possessing a knife was the reason they felt that they couldn't let fire and rescue in to help David. There's proof in the soot that the knives were taken out after the fire. So what in the world is going on here? These big reasons for questioning the death of David Elmquist go along with many other reasons, such as Miss X not calling 911 immediately until she is literally told to do so by a neighbor, and she's still calling one minute behind another caller, even though she was the one directly involved in the incident and supposedly knew David was going to start a fire before she called. Miss X lied about the door being locked and how she tried to get back in. Miss X was able to leave the apartment with all of her essentials, her cell phone, her dog, and the truck keys. Miss X washes up in the bathroom and gets oil off of herself in between this fight where she says she's wrestling David for the lighter and he's standing by this lit stove trying to catch on fire. Miss X lies about the lighter, saying that a week after David's death, her mom found it. Even after there were police, fire and rescue and the state fire marshal, along with many other agencies in the apartment looking for this lighter. And with this, they deem the ignition source to be a towel that is sitting on top of the stove, smoldering, not on fire, smoldering, not disintegrated, smoldering. And this smoldering towel is what leads Scott to believe Miss X did a second pour of the oil in an attempt to create a larger fire within the apartment after setting her own husband on fire. Miss X makes statements about how small the fire was and lies about why David had his wedding ring off when it's proven via picture to be on his bedside nightstand. Miss X refuses to see her husband in the hospital and she soon cuts off communication with David's family. Miss X led police to believe her husband was dangerous, which stopped them from entering the apartment to perform life-saving measures. And Miss X lies yet again. Get this. So just three weeks before David's death, Miss X does have to do, you know, somewhat of an interview with Fairview Medical Facility to see if they will release David with her. And she's like, yes, because he's never been suicidal. He had been acting strange in the last few months, but it was just, you know, this thing going on with his mental health. She thought they could get it in check, but she changes her story just three weeks later when police officers arrive to the fire. She tells them that David had suicidal tendencies in the past. 
And as far as the police department and Hennepin County go, they refuse to acknowledge the missing lighter. Moving on to another theory that doesn't really fit. They so carelessly reported the wrong type of oil that was present at the scene. They claimed there was a standoff with David before he exited the apartment. Although they later ruled that the knives in the home played no role in the situation and they don't acknowledge that the reason David couldn't get out of the home quickly was probably due to the shock and the severe burns that made him blind. They refused to show Scott the phone records of Miss X to see if there was any phone activity during the time she claimed to be asleep just before this incident with David occurred. They are believed to have possibly planted the pristine knives laying on the floor. Several county attorneys reiterated that the door was locked without checking the police reports to see that the door was in fact not locked. They forced David to crawl around and be checked for weapons after stumbling out of his apartment before they would go help him. That makes me so mad. They expressed to the media that Fire and Rescue had indeed gone in to rescue David, which we know did not happen. So what do you think happened here? Was David Elmquist a man going through a psychotic break so he lights himself on fire somehow, keeping both of his wrists clean, and then proceeded to have a standoff with officers outside of his door while he sits there 90% burned and dying? Or was he a man going through a psychotic break vulnerable to those around him and murdered due to this opportunity to take advantage of his deteriorating mental health. Was this police department a department that was right in their findings? Or did they jump to conclusions too quickly based on David's mental health? Or does it go even further than that, into a cover-up where evidence was planted to fit their narrative and save their own butts? One thing to lose your son and then you sense all these, and you're, these people are lying to you. You yeah. know, people that are supposed to be executing justice and said they're involved in the cover-up. And then it's forced me, you know, if I wasn't secretly recording people, if I didn't go back and interview a witness at the apartment, look at my autopsy photos, this chick would have gotten away with murder. Yeah. And, exactly. and, and I don't think she's going to, frankly. I think as, as we got 25,000 people signed up. Um, Governor Walsh, you know, had better respond, you know. David's family does have a petition up that you can find on all of their social media. They're on Instagram at Truth for David Scott and on Facebook at Truth and Justice for David Scott Elmquist. And they've released a video on YouTube. Yay, congrats, you guys. I'm so glad you're getting the story out there. Now, the petition that they are asking us to sign is a petition that is requesting the Minnesota Attorney General to appoint an outside prosecutor to review David's death. That's all they want here. Unfortunately, through all of this, David's family has not had their answers or concerns met, and that has broken their trust with the agencies that investigated David's death and ruled it as a suicide. 
please go to their page, find the petition, sign it and help them put the pressure on to receive an outside prosecutor and receive an in-depth and honest investigation into David's death. They just want answers. They haven't tried to hide the fact that David had his struggles, but that's the point here. People who have struggles are vulnerable to being a victim of a crime, and we need to stand up and fight for these people who cannot fight for themselves. Help bring David's family some answers, and maybe one day, if that investigation concludes that there was in fact foul play, hopefully they can also receive justice. Decimated by life, and um, I haven't been able to fully... Grieve. I mean, on Friday, I had to look at the worst autopsy photos again. Yeah. And um, it's just ridiculous uh, that I would have to do that because these guys don't do their job. I'm thankful to God Almighty that I'm talking to you, right? Yeah. But I I shouldn't have to continue to relive this hell. No, you shouldn't. Like, this, this should not be on you. And Scott's right. This should not be on him. He should not have to do all the legwork. This is heartbreaking for a father. And honestly, this interview was super hard for him to do. He had to talk about things in David's case that no father should ever have to reiterate. He's also a little scared of having a voice and speaking his truth and speaking his mind. He deserves answers and he's putting himself out there just to at least get an outside investigation. That's all he wants. And if he can get a fair outside investigation, then he can truly find answers, regardless of where they point him to. David Scott Elmquist was a gentle and loving son, brother, and friend. He was a hard worker who loved his family, and he deserved the chance to get through his mental health crisis. He deserved the chance to overcome whatever was put in front of him. He deserved the chance to live a full life. And he is still so loved by his family. His family that is fighting for him. We cannot stigmatize people who are struggling. And we can't forget that men can experience domestic abuse as well. I firmly believe that if this case was the case of a woman who was trying to leave her spouse, who was trying to divorce her husband, and she had a history of, you know, being smacked by her spouse, being grabbed in the face by her spouse, she was being isolated from her family and treated very poorly, then this case may have been taken a lot more seriously. And to Scott... David's dad. Thank you for sharing David's story with all of us. You are strong. You are brave and you are giving everything to this fight for your son. Keep going because you've got this. Let's finally find you answers in the death of your youngest son, David Scott Elmquist.
Okay, this story, it's going to be a little funny because we are talking about my baby sister, Willow. Willow Waters is her middle, her last name. So, if you wanted, if you want to listen to the story about my sister, then you better come on this palate cleanser, and you'll be, and you'll think my sister is so cute. First, what we are going to say about my sister is that she's so chubby and cute, and she is so fun to play with. And when Mom was doing her podcast in Willa's room, I was watching with her. I I was watching her and playing with her with her toys, but sometimes I had to get mad at her because I was taking my nap in Willa's room, but then she kept destroying it, so I had to put her in her toy box. It sounds a little funny. Which, I hope you like this podcast. Okay, bye. Thank you for listening to our show today. This was a very important one. And if you did listen, please, please do your part by going and signing that petition for David's family, by following their social media pages in an attempt to support them and support this cause. This podcast was written, researched, hosted and edited by me, Kayla Waters, and my mom, Alicia Jenkins, who is our co-host. She wasn't here with us today because she's enjoying the beautiful Maui, but I had that awesome opportunity to have Scott Elmquist on our show today instead, as well as my dad, Lauren Jepson. Our palette cleanser was given to us by Charlie Waters. Our original graphic art was created by Arthur Max. And our music was created by Jaden Schultz, who you can find on Instagram at In Pajamas Music. Make sure you go and leave us a five-star written review on Apple Podcasts. And now you can do that on Spotify as well. Please help me continue to bring you these episodes by supporting my show. Also, follow us on social media. You can find us on Instagram at TrueCrimeXPod, TrueCrimeExpod, and you can find us on TikTok at TrueCrimeExposedPodcast. Instead of talking about an organization today, I really just want to highlight the petition that David's family is putting forward. So again, you can find them at Truth for David Scott, and you can also visit the website www.change.org slash Truth for David. And on this website, you'll be able to look at, you know, the self-immolation videos and kind of get an understanding of how that works. You will also be able to find the petition that you can sign. You can also find other ways to support the family and other information on this case. The more signatures they get on this petition, the better, obviously. And this would mean the world to David's family to get an outside prosecutor. They just want answers. They just want an objective view. Thanks for listening today. Please share this episode with your friends and your family and onto your social media. Bye. 